Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. I'm going to be reading 1 Timothy verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Well, we did it. We made it through a whole book of the Bible, through Matthew, and now we're starting a brand new one. I'm very excited to jump into a brand new series uh, through First and Second Timothy. And um, today, if you're a note taker, today is like a note taker's dream because I just am putting my outline right on the screen for you as we go through. Um, I already got a fist pump. That's good. <laughs> Um, and those of you who are not note-takers could care less. But um, the way that this sermon is going to be outlined, just so you know, I'm going to be introducing the book of 1 Timothy, kind of the characters at play here, who wrote it, who's it written to, and, uh, and what's the big idea of the book. And then we'll kind of switch gears a little bit, and we'll go into the first verses here. So it's going to kind of be like two sermons in one. Um, but as I said, outline is going to be right on the screen, so you'll have no problem following along. Let me uh, pray for us again before we get into this. Father, would you be pleased to come and focus our hearts right now? There's so many things that are fighting for our attention, things in our minds, uh, things that Uh, We're wrestling with this morning, phone calls that we got, texts that we got, conversations that we've had, the week that we've had, so many things, Lord, happening even in the room that might want to pull us away from the one thing we really need to focus on right now, and that's you and your word what's true. And Lord, I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would allow us to actually examine ourselves rightly. Use your word like a mirror and help us to see ourselves. Not to be deceived about how our walk with you is right now. Lord, show us the truth. Show us the truth of your word and encourage our faith. And may we walk out of here changed and transformed, having encountered you, the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. So, 1 Timothy. Who wrote 1 Timothy? Look at verse number 1 with me. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So Paul, the apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Who is Paul? Paul was a church planter, a sequential church planter. He traveled around and he would plant a church. He would preach the gospel, make disciples, raise up leaders, and then leave that church after a few years and move to another city and do it all over again. That's what Paul did. This is happening, if you were in our Matthew series and we ended that up, we finished that up last week with the Great Commission, this is happening roughly, this is being written roughly 30 years after that was ended. This is probably A.D. 62 to A.D. 64. And so Paul's been, he's been on some missionary journeys by this point. This would, this would have been written during a fourth missionary journey. That fourth missionary journey is not recorded in Acts, but it is mentioned in Romans 15. And so he's, he's writing this after, if you're familiar with the story in Acts, after his imprisonment right at the end of the book of Acts. And he's been traveling around and planting churches, and he's written letters to churches, and then he's writing letters to pastors, to men that he's mentored. And so he writes this letter to Timothy. So here's my, the beginning of my uh, outline. We can put that up on the screen. Um, who wrote it? That's Paul, and that's around A.D. 62, A.D. 64. Who's it to? It's written to Timothy. Who's Timothy? I want to look at Timothy. Timothy uh, is a guy that, that Paul mentored. Paul loved to pour into and develop people, to raise people up to be leaders. If you've been around New King for a little while, you know that we're passionate about that here at New King. Uh, We want to plant as many churches as God will allow us to plant. We have sent out a few so far. And even right now, we have a couple of guys, Camden and Luke, who are going through the process, who could potentially become pastors. We're we're basically taking men who've shown faithfulness and a desire to potentially be a pastor, and we're just trying to help to see, is this indeed something that God is calling them to? And so that's a desire of ours. We want to do what we see in Scripture, which is pour into people who are... Have you ever heard of the... uh, the Navigators, the, the, the Navigators, their big discipleship ministry, they have this acronym. They say in order to disciple someone, they have to be fat. F-A-T. Faithful, available, and teachable. And here's what we find when we look at Timothy. He is definitely faithful, available, and teachable. Um, we find... We find out a good bit about Timothy in Acts chapter 16. If you want to flip over there, I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. Acts 16. 
And the first few verses say this. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. This is our introduction to Timothy, but he's already a disciple at this point. How is that? Well, this is Paul's second missionary journey. So he has already made one missionary journey, and he's already traveled through Lystra, where Timothy and his family live. And so, most likely, Paul took the gospel there. He was the first person to take the gospel. The, the gospel's advancing, right? We, we go back to last week. Jesus sent his disciples out. He commissioned them. He said, go make disciples of all nations. And that's happening, and the gospel is spreading, right? Still happening today. The gospel is advancing all over the world. You cannot stop the gospel. No one can stop the gospel. Here we are all the way over in Vermont on the other side of the world from where it started. And look at all of us believers in this place. You cannot stop this gospel from advancing. And this is exactly what's happening as Paul's going out. He's taking the gospel. And so he's gone to Lystra. He's coming back to Lystra on his second missionary journey, and he comes across Timothy, right? And Timothy has a reputation already. This would have been about roughly two years after he had first shared the gospel in Lystra. And now Timothy's got a reputation. What's his reputation? He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. There there are two cities, Lystra and Iconium, in Galatia. If you're familiar with the book of Galatians, it's in that region. And the church in those places knows Timothy. So what does that tell us? He's faithful. This guy's faithful. And, And... And especially in those days, it was so important that the church served one another. So we know he serves. He serves. He's faithful. He's he's got a good reputation there. What else can we see about him? Well, his mom's a believer, but his dad's not. And uh, we see that. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but... His father was Greek, a Greek. You see that? Not, uh, the, you know, his mother was a believer and his father was a believer. We know that he's young. Paul calls him young. He says, don't let people look down on you because of your youth. We know that he's young. We know that he comes from a home where he doesn't have the same faith as his dad. Big deal in the first century. Big deal. And yet he is still willing to pour himself out for this gospel. So much so that when Paul says to him, 
hey, I'd love for you to leave your home and your church and your job and everything comfortable that you've ever known and go with me. By the way, on my missionary journeys, there, there could be shipwrecks, there could be stonings, there could be beatings. Anything could happen. Oh, one more thing. need you to get circumcised because we're going to Jewish people and that could be a stumbling block. As long as that's not a big deal to you, And Timothy's like, sign me up. What on earth? What on earth would make a man be willing to do that? Be willing to leave his home? What on earth would make a man be willing to risk his life? Is it just a philosophy? Is it just theory about how to live the good life? No. Oh no, it's, it's so much more. Timothy has experienced a radical life change. And his life is no longer his own. He's willing to go wherever and do whatever, and sacrifice everything for the sake of this gospel. I love Timothy. And I love Paul, who sees Timothy's and calls them out and says, come on, let's go. It is worth it to leave. It is worth it to suffer. It is worth it. And we need Paul's, don't we? We need Paul's to look at younger men and younger women and say, it's worth whatever sacrifices. Come on, let's go. And we need Timothy's, don't we? Who could make a hundred excuses. Yeah, but my dad doesn't believe this. He's not going to support me. But my spouse doesn't believe this. I'm the only one in my family I'm too young. I'm too old. I've got too, too much riding in my career. We need Timothys who say, it, there's no excuse that should keep me from pouring out my life and following the Lord wherever He calls me. So that's who Timothy is. He's a no-excuses kind of guy, and I like him. What's this book about? Well, um, when, if you look down in verse 3, it says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. When Paul leaves Timothy, he's, Timothy's been traveling with him for a couple of years, and as Paul is leaving Ephesus, he says, this church here needs a pastor. It needs someone who can boldly confront false teaching and false teachers and guard 
sound doctrine. And so I need you to stay here. And of course, Timothy says, okay, if that's what the kingdom needs, that's what I'll do. Love this guy. So he stays, and this letter is written about 10 years after that. And so Timothy's been there for a while at this point, right? And Paul writes this letter reminding him, hey, remember why you were there in the first place. That's still needed. You're still going to have to guard the doctrine. You're still going to have to charge people not to teach any different doctrine than that which has been passed down from Jesus Christ to the apostles and to you. It doesn't change, right? Ten, just because 10 years passed, just because, you know, there are people who've got these great ideas, that doesn't, it doesn't change. It's the faith that has been delivered once for all to the saints, and it doesn't change. And it hadn't changed in 10 years, and it hasn't changed in 2,000. And it will not change in another 2,000. And it doesn't matter what the world says, it is going to stay the same. So he leaves him there for that, and now he reminds him, that's why you're there. And so he wants to to remind him, to, to stir him up, to protect the doctrine of the church. And that's why they're going to be some, we're touching on so many things in this book. We're going to talk about how to, what does a pastor look like? How do, how do you decide who can be a pastor and who can't be a pastor? All of that stuff is put into place. Why? To guard the doctrine, the teaching of the church. A specific way that the Holy Spirit designed for the church to work for this, to guard, to protect what's true. This is what matters at the end. Think about what Jesus said before Pilate and tells us in John's gospel that when he stood before Pilate, he said, for this reason... I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. There's been a battle. There's been a war between truth and lies from the moment the serpent entered into the garden. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, this is why I'm here, to set the record straight. Once and for all, to testify to what is true and he lays it out and that gets passed on to the apostles ultimately it gets written for us in the word of god we can know what's true timothy is to protect the doctrine of the church look at first timothy 3 14 and 15 here is how he puts it to Timothy, he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 
a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says, I'm writing to you so that you'll know how to behave in the household of God. Did you know that the church is the household of God? The family of God? And how is it that we got to be a part of this household, a part of this family? Was it through behaving? No. No, it was not. You need to go back up to the first part of this introduction in 1 Timothy. He says, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. What's he talking about there? He's saying that we needed saving, that we have rebelled against a holy God, gone our own way, sinned against him. We're headed straight for hell, straight for destruction in our sin, in our pride, in our arrogance, in our wickedness. And God, but God, reached down and snatched us. I remember when he did it for me, a junior in college, living for myself, living for, you know, all all the fun I could have, I thought. And he saved me. He rescued me. He opened my eyes to where I could see that Jesus Christ was my only hope. That his life needed to count for me. That his payment for sin needed to be credited to me. And that I had to stop living for myself. And I had to turn away from my sins. And I had to embrace him and let him lead my life. And he changed me. He saved me. And every single person who's a Christian in this room has a story where God reached down and saved you. Because the gospel can't be stopped. Because the gospel got all the way to us. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. And it needs to get to a whole lot more, doesn't it? It didn't come to us to stop with us. The gospel came to us to go through us to others. So he's writing to Timothy to show this is how, now that you've been brought into the family of God by grace, not by behaving, here's what God wants from his family, from his household. He wants his family to be a pillar and buttress, a support, right? To hold up what? The truth to the world. Not just for us. It's not just for us. He wants us to show it to the world. We're supposed to be a city on a hill. And, and we don't just show it to the world by what we say we believe. We show it to the world by how our lives are different. By how we behave in the household of God. You see that? This is countercultural. We're supposed to live as a counterculture. To shine forth, to show forth what is true in a world of lies, to be a right side up family in an upside down world. We show what's true by what we believe, but more prominently 
by how we live out of those beliefs. And that's what this letter is about. That's the first half of the sermon. Now we need to get into the text. I want to I dig in with you into this text. And so look with me at uh, verses 3. Well, we'll start at, yeah, we'll read verses 3 through 6 again. So he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain dis- discussions. So, um, I want to look for a moment now at different doctrine. What, what is he talking about different doctrine, and what does it produce? Um, first of all, I want us to see that when your doctrine gets off, And notice that he doesn't say, uh, he doesn't use the words like false teachings. Because I think think he's making a point here. Like, he's saying, it it just takes the slightest shifts for it to cause problems. He just says, just a different doctrine. Different doctrine. First of all, different doctrine is a distraction. It's a distraction. Look at verse 4. It says, um, myths, endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. That word speculations, the, the old King James Version translates that word questions. That's what it's getting at. The The teaching that was slipping into the church in Ephesus to Timothy's church and that easily slips into the church today that causes speculations, it just causes you to walk away with more questions than you have answers. Just to be more confused than certain. Just to have more doubts than confidence. Our faith is a faith of confidence. If you don't believe me, read the book of Hebrews. It's about that. The book of Hebrews is about holding fast, clinging to our confidence, firm to the end. Christians are not people who are holding on to the wind, wishing that maybe something I believe is possibly true, but I have all this uncertainty. No, no, no. Christians are people who are standing firm on the Word of God. They're the most certain people on the planet because we know what's true. It's very, very clear. It's black and white written for us. 
He's saying this false doctrine, these, these different doctrines are coming in. It's just causing speculation. It's causing more questions than answers. It's causing you just to walk away confused. Back in, in these days, someone had to actually come into the church and teach a different doctrine. Today, all we have to do is click on YouTube or or look at the video that a friend sent us on Facebook. Or... And before we know it, we've got different doctrine. Speculations. More questions than answers. Rather than what? Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship. There's a, a note in the ESV for that word, it means good order. Rather than the good order that is by faith. Right doctrine doesn't lead to more doubts, more questions. It leads to more certainty as you dig into it. It gives you a firm footing to stand on. So don't be distracted by different doctrine. Secondly, it is destructive. Look at verse 6. He says, Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away. Have wandered away into vain discussions. That word vain there, it means unproductive. Conversations that get you nowhere. Right? And, and those kinds of conversations, the speculations, they, these conversations that do not get you anywhere, they lead people ultimately away from Christ. And just about anybody in this room who's been following Jesus for long enough knows someone who's gone down that road, don't we? We know people who got distracted who started listening to some different doctrines, some mixture of what the culture tells me about whatever, gender, sexuality, marriage, whatever. They started listening to what the culture told them and they followed that path and they thought, I'm not leaving Jesus, I'm just checking out some interesting speculations. I'm just, I'm just having some interesting discussions. And the next thing you know, they're gone. We don't need to have to listen to the speculations and and the interesting right there. It's all interesting. Tickles the ears. It's interesting. You want to hear it. Because it's new. But as Charles Spurgeon once said, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. We don't need to mix what the Word of God clearly says with what our culture tells us we should believe or what our culture tells us is morality or goodness. We look to the Word for that. All right, so that's a look at what this different doctrine looks like and what it produces. Now I want to look at sound doctrine. 
sound doctrine. We're going to look at verse 5. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, when he says our charge, what does he mean there? He means as pastors, the charge that we've been given to lead and shepherd the church and guard the doctrine, to teach sound doctrine. That's the charge that he's referring to, to Timothy, the charge that he gave him when he left him in Ephesus, to teach sound doctrine. He says the aim of that charge is what? Love. It has a purpose, a direction, an aim. The false teaching, it's, it causes you to drift all over the place, be tossed like a boat on the waves, right? But sound doctrine is firm. It has an aim. It's going somewhere, and the goal of it is love. Love. Look with me at John chapter 13. Keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 1. We'll come back. John chapter 13. Verses 34 and 35. Am I preaching really hard or is it just this hot in here? I'm sweating. Man. Um, all right, verses 34 and 35. He, Jesus says to his disciples, John 13, his last evening with them before he's arrested, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what Jesus wanted from his disciples. It's what he wants from us. He wants a church that's unified. He wants a church that loves each other, that serves each other, which, by the way, this church does. Praise God. He he wants a church that loves. This is what Sound doctrine, good doctrine is moving us toward love. It is not aimless. It has a clear aim, and that is love. But love doesn't come out of just any heart. There are conditions that love springs forth from. What are they? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's look at those briefly. A pure heart. When the Bible talks about a pure heart, that word pure, it's, it's single, like unmixed, like gold that's pure. Pure gold has no other metals mixed in. A pure heart is singular. It has one goal, one burning desire, God. That's a pure heart. The way that James talks about this in in James chapter 4 is he says, 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You double-minded. The, the double-minded person he talks about in chapter 1 is a person who sometimes I believe and sometimes I doubt and sometimes I believe and sometimes I doubt. And they're tossed around like the waves. A double-minded person, they're, they might believe when, when I'm studying the Bible. I might believe when I'm at church and then, you know, on middle of the week, I don't. I ignore God in the world that he created. I reject him and his righteous laws. I go my own way and do my own thing. That's impurity. That's, that's sin, but sin comes from unbelief, right? Right? That's an impure heart. A pure heart wants God Sunday morning and Monday morning and every morning. That's a pure heart. It's unmixed, undivided. And he goes on. So, so a pure heart, out of that kind of a heart, we can love. Right? When we are divided, when we are mixed, when our passions are mixed, when our desires are mixed, we can't rightly love God. We can't rightly love anyone, right? And so, and he goes on, he says, in a good conscience, a good conscience. In Acts 24 and 16, Paul says that he takes great pains to keep a good conscience, a clear conscience, before God and man. He takes great pains. Why? Why was that so important to him? Why did he need to keep a clear conscience? Because a guilty conscience is a faith killer. Right? If you've walked with Jesus for a while, you know this. If you go on in sin or unconfessed sin for long enough, what starts to happen? Your faith takes a dive, doesn't it? Because in your guilt, in your shame, you kind of keep God at arm's length. You stay away from a certain, you know, you got to keep him at a certain distance. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden after they fell, they got to hide themselves, right? That's what sin does to us. It creates shame. It keeps us away from God. When we have a clear conscience, we, we rush into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this. Let us draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. How do you draw near without your heart sprinkled clean? What is going to sprinkle our hearts so that we can approach the throne without shame? The blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from a guilty conscience. Listen, the best way to keep a clear conscience is to not sin. Right? But we will. And we do. Daily. Maybe hourly. Sometimes I wonder if I sin through the night while I'm asleep. Because I wake up and I feel sinful. I don't even know why. <laughs> and I 
Say, Lord, just cleanse me with your blood again. And faith activates that sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago. And that blood that he spilled, that divine blood, that perfect blood gets applied to my conscience again and it's clean. Because he's promised that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so we take pains to keep a clear conscience, to confess our sin to God, to confess to those we sin against, and to make it right. And we believe the gospel that that blood never loses its potency. It is as strong today as the day it was spilled and as the day you first believed. So we keep a clear conscience, a good conscience, and from that place we can live close to God and we can love Him and we can love others. Finally, he says, a sincere faith. Actually, I forgot something. Let me go back. What happens if you don't keep a clear conscience? Look at the end of this chapter, chapter 1. Just jumping ahead just a bit here. At the end of verse 18, he's instructing Timothy to wage the good warfare. In verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Faith needs a good conscience to thrive. And there are some who rejected that and lost their faith. And it still happens today. So much is at stake when it comes to keeping a good conscience. All right. A sincere faith. I want to look at this last one. Sincere faith. What does he mean? A faith that is sincere is authentic. The opposite of a sincere faith is a hypocritical faith. This is a person who's one, one person in church, another person out. One person with Christian friends, another person with other friends. A sincere faith is genuine, authentic. It's active. It trusts God. It puts Christ at the center, right, of its life. Out of these things, a pure heart, a singular heart, an unmixed heart, a clear conscience, a good conscience that believes the gospel, that applies the gospel, that repents of sin, confesses sin, and receives forgiveness, out of a sincere faith that's authentic and genuine and the same no matter where they are or who they're with, out of that heart, what happens? Love flows. Love for God and love for others. And in the context, sound teaching, sound doctrine produces those things. Gospel doctrine produces a pure heart, leads us to have pure hearts, good consciences, 
and sincere faith. It's good doctrine that those things are built upon and then that love flows out of. So as we wrap this up, because it's hot. I once had a conversation with a guy who was an elder of a large church, a couple thousand people. And he said to me, you know, I love God. I I love being a, a pastor. I'm just not into theology. That's just not my thing. And I could not believe those words came out of a pastor's mouth. And what was implied in the conversation was that he's into the practical things, you know, the things that really matter in real life. Folks, that is so ignorant. There is nothing more practical than what you believe about God. There is nothing more practical to your real life than your theology, your doctrine. Because your life is an overflow of what you believe. The choices that you make, the decisions that you make, the things that you pursue, the things you choose not to pursue, everything about who you're becoming comes back to your sincere beliefs. Not what you say you believe. Because oftentimes we say we believe something and we live a different way, but what you really believe, there's nothing more practical than that. And as we keep moving through First and Second Timothy, we're going to unpack so many practical doctrines, things that will radically shape our faith, shape our beliefs, and ultimately transform our behaviors in the real world so that the world can see, so that we can be a pillar and a buttress of the truth, so that we can be light in darkness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We want to be a people who show this world what is true by not only what we believe, not only what we say we believe, but by how we live. First and foremost, we want to be a people of love, of genuine love, not the world's definition of love, but genuine love, true love, that's based upon the truth, that flows out of pure hearts and clean consciences and sincere faith. Would you make us that kind of people by the power of your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.